Well, good morning again. I don't think I told you who I was the first time. Um, My name is Nathan. I'm on the teaching team here at Journey Church. And so it is great to see you on this beautiful Memorial Day weekend. Uh, We are in a series. We're actually in week three of a four-week series where we are looking at, we're calling the series Set Apart. And we are looking at, as we just read, 1 Peter 2.9 and the four different identity statements that he makes about the church in that one verse where he says, as we just read, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, God's, or a holy nation, God's special possession, that, purpose clause, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Now, you might be wondering like, okay, but four weeks, four weeks talking about basically ourselves, like we're talking about the church for four weeks and what our identity is according to the Holy Spirit inspired scriptures. That seems a bit much. Maybe some of you would think that, but one sobering statistic might help you understand the actual importance of thinking about God's design for the church. Just this last week, Barna, which is a leading research group that studies the intersection of faith and culture, released a study titled, Openness to Jesus Isn't the Problem, The Church Is. Provocative. According to Barna's recent survey, when they asked Americans if they had a positive or negative view of Jesus, 71% had a positive view of Jesus. 71%, seven out of 10 Americans, whether they were of Christian faith, other faith, or no faith, seven out of 10 of those would say, Jesus, positive. Now that's interesting, but that's not sobering. Here's what's sobering. While 71% of Americans has a, had a positive view of Jesus, only 47% had a positive view of churches in their community. Only 26% had a positive view of evangelicals. Now you might be like, what is that? Is that a political term? Pretty much. It's a little bit misleading, but it's interesting that according to Barna, there's a disconnect. And so why would people, here, here's my question. Why would people be so open to Jesus, the head of the church, and so less open to his body, his bride? There is a major disconnect between Jesus and his church in the American experience. And to be honest, I can't exactly fault that assessment. And this is a complex issue with a lot of reasons behind it, I believe, And I think as you just kind of stick with us through the summer and into the fall, we're going to kind of hit on maybe why that is in some different ways and some different places. But I do believe that today's identity marker is a great launching point to really discuss and think about why this is. Today's identity marker is identity marker number three. We are a holy nation. And as Daniel just said and has said for three weeks now or two weeks before me, we've been using the term identity for Peter's four statements about the church. And here's the deal, as, as we have said, here's the deal with identity. Who you are informs what you do. We've said that every week because it's true. Who you are 
informs what you do. But I would also like to argue with you that, that who you think you are informs what you do too. You see, we live from an identity, whether that identity is a reality or just merely kind of a perceived identity. A few weeks ago, uh, my 15-year-old nephew, who's also our neighbor, cleaned out his closet. And in so doing, he found several jerseys that were too small for him. And so he brought them next door to us to give to my six-year-old son, his six-year-old cousin. And so most of them are too big still, but one in particular did fit Brooks and it was a Steph Curry jersey. Now, if you don't know who Steph Curry is, he is the all-time NBA National Basketball Association leader of three-point shots. He has revolutionized the game. You can YouTube him. He's got, not now, but later. He's got cool dribble moves. His pregame routine is like renowned. And I was showing Brooks that, that he would shoot these three-point shots and would turn around and run back to the other side of the court, not even watching if it would go in because he was so confident. And if you're playing against that, it's really frustrating. But if he's on your team, that's pretty awesome, right? And so I was showing Brooks this and he's been playing basketball in the backyard for a while now. And, but what was interesting is like once I showed him the video and he donned the jersey, bro, I mean, he was getting it, right? I mean, he was like going behind the back and he would shoot and turn around and walk off. Now, not all, of them, some of them didn't hit rim even, but I was shocked at how much actually he swished. You know, it has a lot cooler effect if you walk away when it makes it versus an air ball. But here's the point, like it's obvious to all of us that my six-year-old putting on a Steph Curry jersey doesn't make him a historic basketball player, no matter how much he or me, we might think it does. No matter how much a perceived identity feels real or how much you want it to be real, doesn't make it real. And it's not just individuals who try to live from false identities, church do it too despite the scriptures clearly and thoroughly describing the church's identity, who we are, what we are to be about, how we are to engage the world, we often see the sad result of the church trying to be something that she really isn't or was ever called to be. And as Barna is telling us, our culture sees it too. The church often doesn't resemble Jesus or the identity that he marked out for us. And when we get this twisted, who we're called to be and who we think we are, well, it's ineffective at best or catastrophic at worst. So let's examine the reality of our identity as a holy nation today. And in so doing, let's consider what I would say are three aspects of being a holy nation. We have a preeminent or, or a higher calling Yet we have an imminent, or maybe you could use the word near, influence. And then there's a transcendent participation. So a preeminent calling, an imminent influence, and a transcendent participation. So first, just looking at the idea of we have a preeminent calling, let's begin by just looking at the two words that Peter uses to define the church in this statement. First, the word holy is the Greek word hagios, meaning basically set apart, sacred, pure, morally blameless, or religious, holy. Like this is where we get the term set apart, holy. How about nation? 
It's the Greek word ethnos, meaning a multitude of individuals of either the same nature or living together. I mean, America is a nation. We are a multitude of individuals, not with the same nature necessarily, but that live in the same area. We live together. And so Peter is saying the church is a holy nation. We are a people who are a set apart, pure, sacred multitude of individuals of the same nature. This is our identity. This is our calling, if you will. But this calling doesn't start with us. It doesn't start with the church. The church is not the first group of people called a holy nation in the scriptures. If we go all the way back to the beginning, we can see God has always been about having a people who are set apart to him and then represent him and his goodness and holiness to others. And Genesis, the book of Genesis, the first book in your Bible is paramount to understanding so much of the story of scripture. It's the origin of God's design. And we find in chapter one, the origin of his creation. Genesis one speaks of God bringing order, speaking creation into existence, making spaces to inhabit and then placing inhabitants into them. It's actually really quite poetic and symmetrical in nature. And I want you to see this. This is not some diatribe that I'm going off on. I'm trying to, to show you from the jump in scripture that God is about having a people. So day one, God creates light. Right? He separates light from darkness, day and night. Day two, God creates sky and sea. He separates the waters above from the waters below, creating an expanse, spaces. He's creating spaces. Day three, he gathers the waters together into sea so that land can appear. And then from the land, he causes vegetation to rise up. We have three days and God has made three different spaces now, light and dark, sky and sea, sea and land. Day four, he then fills those spaces. Day four, he creates the lights for the day and night that he created on day one. He creates sun to govern the day, moon and stars to govern the night. Day five, he fills the sky and sea that he separated in day two with birds and sea creatures. Day six, God fills the land that was received when he gathered the seas on day three with livestock and creeping things and wild animals. And you may be, because of the time of year we're at, you may be noticing here that we don't see any insects like mosquitoes. They come after the fall. I'm just, I'm sure of it. But I digress. What's interesting about this symmetry is that to this point, it seems complete. He's had three days of creating spaces, three days, you might say, of forming the unformed, and then three days of filling the unfilled. It's, it's done, right? Not yet. Because after all that God has created, all that he has formed and filled, we read that God has one more creative act, and that's where we find ourselves in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. 
he created them. So after the symmetry of forming and filling, God makes an image bearer of himself unique from all other creation. Why is it structured this way? Well, many scholars see the image and the language of Genesis 1 as temple imagery, ancient temple imagery. In the Far East, when cultures made temples to their false gods, they would finish by placing an image of the false god inside the temple like an idol. And as time goes on, many cultures would begin to see the king or the leader of their tribe or nation as even an image of God. Caesar was even worshipped as God in Rome. Yet, in a surprising twist for this Far Eastern culture in the time of Genesis, when God places his image Inside his dwelling place, earth, he places his image not in an inanimate object or one leader, but in all people. The image of God from the beginning placed inside his finished creation is mankind. But he didn't just place his image in us, he called them to reflect him, his glory, his loving rule. It's what you see in Genesis 1.26, his loving rule to the rest of creation. And this identity was from the very beginning and it was to supersede any other identity and it came with a vocation, with a job to do. We are his image bearers to reflect his goodness. That's humanity's initial call. However, as we know, if you've read the Bible or been here long or, or really just lived long, our first parents, Adam and Eve, broke God's design for intimacy with him Instead of believing God is good and reflecting his glory to all creation, they believe the lie of the serpent and attempt to grasp glory for themselves. And from here, all of humanity and all creation ensues, a, or a, fall, a fall for all of humanity and creation ensues and our image bearingness is not gone, but it is marred. But God doesn't reject his desire to have people display his goodness to the world. As humanity is fruitful and begins to multiply across the earth, God picks his plan back up with a man that we're introduced to in chapter 12 named Abram, later renamed to Abraham. And this is what he says to Abraham in chapter 12, verse two. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God makes a people that he will bless as his people. And this is ultimately, this people is ultimately who would become Israel. This is why in the New Testament, religious leaders will say things to Jesus like, you know, we're children of Abraham, right? This is where it comes from. God would have a people. God would have a nation and God would bless the entire world, the nations through this nation. This then is what's further said about Israel. After several hundred years, they've become even larger and larger. They're now enslaved in Egypt and God sets them free to the promised land that he promised Abraham. And this is what he says to Moses in Exodus 19. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These should be sounding familiar. Peter is taking his identity statement straight from Exodus 19. 
Now, Peter and the New Testament writers see the church not as something entirely different from the story of God in the Old Testament, but as a fulfillment of what he was always doing, a people for his name to reflect him now as his redeemed image bearers. And we are under this new covenant. So there are differences between Israel being a nation state called to holiness with God as their ultimate king and with the church as a chosen race and a holy nation. And we're gonna discuss more of that in a minute. But to be clear, here's what I want us to see. We have a calling that goes back to the beginning of time as the church that is the fulfillment of that calling. We are to reflect the goodness and holiness of God to the world as a people that are set apart by God in Jesus Christ, the ultimate person who God blessed the world through the nation of Israel. We are a holy nation. This is our preeminent calling. No calling on your life supersedes this calling. This one is preeminent, which means many of us who claim to follow Jesus have tried living from a false identity. And one that I see prevalent right now in our country today is this idea that's often called Christian nationalism. It's this idea that America should be a Christian nation, God's chosen nation, and we should do all we can to legislate to that end. And just as a caveat, to a degree, I get where it comes from. I mean, I believe for many of us, it comes that if, if you fall in that camp or you know somebody who falls in that camp, it comes from, I think, a good place in our hearts that we desire to see what Jesus called us to pray for, that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We, we should be, we wanna be for justice in the world and we, we wanna be against oppression and work against the, the things that perpetuate death and darkness. Amen, we should be. But the method by which we do this is not primarily legislative or exerting political power. Jesus had all authority in heaven and on earth and he used his power that he had to love God and his neighbor, to offer grace, to speak the truth in love and people were transformed. And since Jesus' ascension into heaven, the Holy Spirit has now been sending his set apart people out into the world as a holy nation among the nations with his power to love and to transform lives. Some of us miss the idea that it is the church global and historical that is a holy nation. Peter called churches in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, 2000 years ago, a holy nation. The church in America is about as disconnected from the recipients of Peter's first letter as possible in regards to time and in regards to space. And yet his letter is simultaneously as pertinent to a church in Jonesboro, Arkansas in 2023 as any other church on the planet or across history at the same time. So we must break from this expectation of God to treat America as his chosen holy nation because when we do, it leads to misunderstanding on how we can actually relate to the unbelieving culture around us. To do that, we need to examine, to think a few factors at play here. This is not all of them, but these are three that, that came to mind to me. We tend to conflate, that means mix, patriotism with identity. Now, it doesn't, it's, it's not um, 
odd to me that this sermon just happened to land on Memorial Day weekend. I mean, it's, it is the very weekend that we honor those who've given their life for our country and we should honor them and their families. I mean, the fact that I can even stand up here and say anything that I've said to this point is because of the freedom that we have. We should be patriotic. Patriotism is not just fine, it's great until it becomes conflated with your identity. You see, we have a preeminent identity that goes beyond the fact that we're Americans. We are a holy nation. The second thing we do, we tend to conflate the government of the land with the kingdom of heaven. And this idea of a theocracy that God should be our president, God should be king of America. Because when, when we do that, it leads to politics and power grabs that don't reflect the power of the kingdom of God, which is our call to love God and others with a sincere heart. We have a preeminent calling. But not just that, we also conflate our witness and our testimony with laws and decrees in an attempt to turn stone hearts into flesh when only the Spirit of God could ever do that. You see, we have a preeminent witness. This is our preeminent calling and identity over any other identity. We are members of God's holy nation among the nations. And this is the longest point, so if you're worried, you can breathe. But here's the last thing I wanna say. We are not called to live in a holy nation, but to be a holy nation in the midst of an unholy nation all over the world. And Peter makes something else clear that when we live out this identity as a holy nation, we will have an imminent influence. Back to 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a holy nation that purpose clause, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We have an imminent influence by being witnesses of Jesus. And notice the message Peter says we are to declare, the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. I mean, I would just ask, if you see this verse, how congruent is the testimony of this with the testimony of churches where we live? How congruent do you think they really are? I mean, there's three facets of this testimony that I see sometimes missing in the church's witness here. First, I want us to see that the witness is a declaration of praise. This is a witness of worship. And it's centered on the only one worthy of worship Jesus and his call in our lives. When you see lost people in our city acting like lost people, is your guttural instinct to condemn or to show them the error of their ways. Stop drinking that. Don't go there. Stop watching that. Stop saying that. You shouldn't do that. Is that your guttural instinct when lost people act like lost people? Or is it to proclaim how wonderful Jesus is? What's your instinct? Because our witness is worship of Jesus. That's what Peter says, to declare the praise. But second, notice that we're called out of darkness. We are to be holy 
because God is holy and we are his redeemed image bearers. We, we're to be a holy nation representing his glory in all nations on earth. We're not to live lives in the darkness. In fact, John would say it this way in his first letter, 1 John 1, 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. That stings. He's not mentioned words. Our witness of the goodness of Jesus in his rule and reign cannot be shouts from the darkness or whispers from the darkness. In fact, Jesus himself said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that you, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We are called out of darkness, brothers and sisters. We don't live there. So many of our churches today, and sadly, many church leaders included, are merely professing head knowledge of Jesus without a heart transformed by him. Are you playing around in the darkness? If you're a disciple of Jesus, he is calling you out of it. As Daniel said the first week, to be faithful in where we are. But third and lastly on this, notice how Peter describes what Jesus has called you into. He's called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Do you see Jesus, life with Jesus and his ways as wonderful and light. As I was thinking about this, the, the image I got in my mind, um, really it's, a, it's an experience that I got in my mind is uh, like, especially this time of year, we, we tend to sleep with our house cold. We try to turn it down to about 68. Some of you might be more sanctified and be at 65. That's the magic, I think, number for good sleep. But we're at 68. Um, and so it's dark. We have these dark curtains in the room. And so when I wake up in the morning, it is dark and cold. And especially this time of year, as it gets sunny early in the morning, and especially as these mornings get warmer and warmer, the, the picture I have here is, is me getting up and leaving my dark and cold bed. And I go out of that back patio and I feel the warmth of the sun, the light. It's, it's like almost shocking how much it makes you just instantly more aware after being in the cobwebs of sleep. And this is what I picture, that Jesus is calling us out of darkness, this cold, dark, blind place. And he's calling you into this marvelous, wonderful, warm light where you can be aware of what's real. You can see who he is and what's around you. This is our testimony to a lost, dying world in darkness. It's not, get your act together, but come and see Jesus who called me, who called us to leave darkness and death behind and to step into this life in his wonderful light. He is so worth it. Can I just tell you about him? Can I, can I show you my savior, my witnesses, worship? But it's 
more than a message that we're called to share because we're called to be witnesses in word and deed. We're called to live holy lives in an unholy world. This is how Peter continues actually in the letter in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Let me just stop there. I don't have this in my notes, but you realize that sin is not just something external. It wages war against your soul. Sorry, go ahead. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Notice that he calls them foreigners and exiles. Is that, it's not because they aren't residents there. This is imagery that Peter's using to remind them that their dwelling place on earth is not their ultimate home. Where they live is not their ultimate nation. That's not their identity. But while they are there, they are to have an influence on those in their midst by the way they live their life and by their testimony. We have a higher calling, but we have an immediate influence around us. The result is that some unbelievers where we live will end up seeing a reflection of God's love, his rule, his reign, and they will glorify him. And before you think, well, sure, it was easy for them. I mean, they lived pretty close to Jesus's life on earth. They had Peter, one of the apostles, writing to them. I want you to consider the marginalization that actually this church was facing that Peter's writing to. And just in their culture, in their context, they were persecuted. They were marginalized to the outside of society. They were spoken ill of by culture at large and people were suspicious of them at best, if not out seeing them as an outright threat to their culture, to Rome at large. And we aren't even that persecuted yet. And I think we can take great hope and instruction in our day of how Peter saw the effect that their immediate and imminent influence could actually have in a culture that was growing more and more antagonist against them. In fact, Tim Chester, who wrote an entire book on 1 Peter, he's called Everyday Church. He says this um, in the book, this is the mission strategy Peter gives to marginalized congregations living in a hostile context. Respond to hostility with good deeds. Live such good lives that people glorify God. At the heart of his mission strategy are not services, courses, programs, and activities, but ordinary lives live for God's glory. Mission takes place not through attractional events, but through attractional communities. Peter is just drawing on Jesus' teaching, right? Jesus, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Back to Tim Chester. The church is God's primary mission strategy in the world. Our strategy must be to litter the world with communities of light. But this brings one more complication for us because the Barna study that I mentioned earlier People, you know, that are more open to Jesus than the church. And you know what the number one, that, that was not the whole study. The second thing they asked is, why are you skeptical of Christianity? And again, there were three groups. I mean, these statistics I've given you are all the groups combined. But there were three groups, Christian faith, other faiths, no faith. Would you believe that of the two, either other faiths or no faith, 
Science was not the number one reason they didn't believe Christianity was real. Suffering wasn't the number one reason they didn't believe Christianity was real. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy of people in the church. And you know what? For even for the people that were Christians, it was their number two reason they didn't. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Christian, but I also am skeptical of Christianity. Why? Hypocrisy. For many, the imminent influence of the church is not a holy nation in the midst of an unholy nation, but rather it's just another unholy nation that looks like the rest of the culture. So if God's plan has always been to have communities of light littered in the world, what hope do we have to actually be holy as God is holy? What hope does Journey have to be a community of light? Or put another way, this feels like a big ask, doesn't it? I mean, how can he actually call us a holy nation? How can he actually say that's true about us? Well, I would argue it's through transcendent participation. What does that mean? Well, Peter gives the answer quite clearly in his second letter. Second Peter, if you flip a few pages over in your Bible, you will see an astounding statement that I think might, if you let it sink in past your mind and into your heart, it might actually shift a pessimism that you'd be like, this is so way too high of a calling for me. A pessimism to maybe an imagination of what could be. Second Peter chapter one, verse three, talking about Jesus, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having accepted or having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. There are several of you in the room today and none of your jaws are hitting the floor. Do you see what Peter just said? That's not a typo. Either this is old news to you and you're like, yeah, I've read that, I know that. Or this is not hitting your heart yet. This should be both convicting and encouraging because it's convicting because all those excuses that we make, like, well, this is why I struggle to follow Jesus. Well, this is why I haven't got over this. Well, this is why I haven't been delivered from that. That's exactly what it is, it's excuses. Peter says that we've been given his divine power so that we can live a godly life. If I'm not living a godly life, it's not because Jesus didn't hold up his end of the deal. But it's also encouraging because when we commit to Jesus, I'm gonna follow you. I'm gonna struggle, but I wanna follow you. He says, I got you. In fact, I'm gonna give you my power. You can participate in the divine nature and be transformed. And brothers and sisters, as I've said many times, that transformation might be one degree at a time. 
It may not go as quick as you want, but you will be transformed because of power that's beyond you and outside you. It's transcendent over you. And this is what Jesus said in Acts chapter one, verse eight. When he calls us to give testimony and be his witnesses, he says, you will receive what? Power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you to be my witnesses to, Ju to Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. We receive power. The witness is both a testimony of the gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on our behalf, in our place, that we receive by faith. And that we are then in that faith invited into the life that Jesus offers through the gospel. We are called by his glory and goodness to witness to his glory and goodness. We have access to his divine power so that we can actually live a holy and godly life. And we can participate in the divine nature, overcoming evil. How is any of this possible? Because anything's possible with God. And two times in 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, two times we see that these are gifts. He has given us everything we need for a godly life. He has given us precious promises, which is namely the gospel and the Holy Spirit to participate in the divine nature. These are not things that we acquire by our own goodness and glory. These are things that we are gifted. We live this holy life as a holy nation by gifts from the good and glorious God. We live this life by grace. And we participate in this life with a divine life that is transcendent over us, but works in us and through us. The, the difference between the church as a holy nation in Israel is that we've been given grace and the spirit of Jesus when we place our faith in him and follow him, we become his disciples. So as we close this morning, there really are two different types of people in this group, in this room, which is true every week, really. I mean, if you boil it down. So the call to action, first of all, if you would be here today and you would just, you would not be a disciple of Jesus. You know, I, I've, I've said this a few times before. Like, I, I don't, like to use the term if you're not a Christian, because again, we've just looked at the separation between people that are part of the church and what Jesus tends to teach. Uh, being a disciple of Jesus means following after Jesus. So if you're here and you're not a disciple of Jesus, then I would just, I would just, the call to action for you is that first of all, like just identity-wise, you're not a holy nation. You're, you're not in the people of God, but you can be today, like literally today. All those things that, that I said about having the divine power to work in you, that God's power, his Holy Spirit can actually come in you and transform you, can be true of you today. You can start your journey today. The good news is that, again, you do it not by acquiring it, not by doing better, not by rolling the sleeves up and getting better at stuff, not by quitting that thing or stopping that thing or going to that place or being here every Sunday. You're transformed by grace. By looking at Jesus and saying, I'm not holy, but you're holy. And that you are willing in great love, unfailing and faithful love to cover my sin. I put my faith in you. 
I turn from sin. I want to follow you, Jesus. Would you change me and make me more like you? He will do it. And you'll be part of a holy nation that's gone over 2,000 years and across all the earth to declare his glory. If that's you, if, if you feel the spirit, maybe you didn't even walk in wanting to know that. And all of a sudden, the spirit's like, ah, I got you. Drawing you in. Come find me. Stop by the welcome desk outside afterwards. Daniel will be here as well. Kevin, other elders, prayer team, find somebody with a help, I need help tag on. Let us talk to you. We'd love to share. We'd love to be a, a witness of worship, declaring the praise of him who called us out of darkness and into wonderful light. Second though, if you are a disciple of Jesus, then let me start with just your identity. You are part of a holy nation made up of some from every nation being sent to all the nations. That is true. So the question I have, and I just want to spend some moments allowing the Holy Spirit to speak, to minister to our hearts. So if you would, like whatever posture is comfortable for you, you don't have to close your eyes. If you want to close your eyes, if it's easier for you, but just Ask the Spirit these questions. First question. Where are you living from a false identity in your life? Would you, if he brought something to mind, would you give that to him? Would you acknowledge? That's not true about me. I confess that and I turn from that. And feel just the, the, the release of that. Second question. Where has the Spirit given you spheres of influence in your life where you can be an eminent influence to proclaim His goodness and His light? Holy Spirit, would you give us, would you give us as we consider this images of people or places that we go, or if you're sending us somewhere else, would you tell us Would you give us the courage to take those steps that sometimes can feel so hard? Would you remind us that our testimony is not how great we are, or how clean our lives are, but it is how great Jesus is and how he is continually drawing us out of darkness. He's continually making us a people that are holy. Last question, do you believe, actually it's kind of a two-parter. First, do you really believe that you have the power from God 
for everything you need for a godly life. Maybe for some of you, that was the first time you ever heard that verse. Or maybe you've read it, but it's never really landed on you before till today. So first, just do you believe that? And if you do, what are you gonna do about it? Lord, would you come and minister to our hearts? Thank you for making us holy. That we are holy in your sight because of Jesus, that those of us who have placed our, our faith in Christ, that he is our holiness, he is our righteousness, he is all that we need to stand before you, a holy God. Thank you for that truth. And as we live from that truth, would you, Holy Spirit, be so clear to us in areas where we are out of step with you, where we are flirting with darkness, where we feel in bondage when your spirit says that we are not. We have been given the divine power. Paul says in Romans that we are set free. We are no longer slaves to, to death and to sin. We have died to our old ways. We have made, been made alive. We've been born again. Would you, would you crystallize that in our minds? Would you let it travel to our hearts and to change those areas that are calloused and hard? And would it lead to hands and lives that are all about proclaiming your glory and living in a way to which people, as Peter would later say in 1 Peter, would ask us, where does that hope you have come from? Would you call us to live that way? Would you show us how to do that? Would you remind us of grace when we fail? That we aren't acquiring anything. We are simply living out of what you have done in us and for us in Jesus Christ. And so we give him the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.